Well, welcome to Harvest Hill. My name is Pastor Mike. If you're visiting with us, I want to say thank you. Uh, I know we have many of our church family are out and about. Labor Day weekend, kind of that last hurrah of summer, being able to get out and uh, be with some family and friends, and hopefully they're having some time of refreshment. But um, I'm glad you're here. I'm glad uh, you're ready for what God has laid in store for us. We're, we're beginning a new series this Sunday. It's going to take us through the month of September and into the month of October, all the way through October, actually. It's going to uh, be focused on this, this idea, remain in love. And uh, before you freak out, this is not going to be like a relationship series or a marriage series. Um, it, it, well, it's a relationship series in that it's our relationship with God, about remaining in love with God. That word remain in Scripture sometimes is the word abide or to dwell or to stay put. Um, remaining in our relationship with God. God is love, so remain in love. The reality is that our relationship with God impacts every other relationship we have in life. Uh, whether that is in a relationship with, an, with our spouse or someone we're dating, uh, our relationship with our coworkers, our relationships with our kids and our immediate family, our relationships with our peers, our relationships with authority figures that God has placed over us, our relationship even with people that we don't like. Our relationship with God impacts all those things. And so uh, we're going to begin this series by uh, seeing... How do we do this? How do we remain in God? How do we remain uh, connected to Him? If you took the challenge last series and about maturing our relationship with God, about memorizing Scripture, I want to give you two verses that you have 10 weeks to get these two verses down. We'll take it on together. It comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 15. It's verse 4 and 5. And it's Jesus speaking. And we're going to look at these passages next week more in depth. But Jesus says, Remain in me. And I in you, just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains on the vine, neither can you unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because you can do nothing without me. And again, that's the Gospel of John chapter 15 verses 4 and 5. I'd like to mention, we're going to look at that a little bit more next week. But this concept of remaining can be found all throughout Scripture from the Old Testament into the New Testament. In the Old Testament, the, the, the Old Testament is originally written in the Hebrew language. And the word we read as remain or abide or to dwell is shakan. It, it means to settle down. It means to reside in that particular place and to, and to continue. In particular, it's used mostly in references where God tells His people, this is where you are to dwell. You are to dwell in this land. You are to stay here. You are to reside here. You are to lodge here. But it also implies that idea of, of residing or remaining within the presence of God, remaining within the promises of God and the instructions of God and the commands of God. When God would tell His people to dwell in the land which I have put you, He would be speaking about the promised land. So it would be referring to the covenant given to Moses at Mount Sinai that I am going to be your God. You're going to be my people. And that, that comes with uh, uh, two things playing a part. I'm going to be your God. I'm going to be constantly with you. But your part is that you must trust me. You must obey my commands. You must listen to my commands. You must live out my commands in, in your life. And so you have to remain in me. You have to remain in these things. And the New Testament, the, the Greek word, New Testament is written in Greek, is meno. And it holds the same concept as the Old Testament word that we read as remain or abide or dwell, except it goes a little bit further in that it is a continuous and active waiting. 
meaning it's not just standing still, but it is a continuous motion. Even though you're abiding, even though you're remaining and settling down, it is a continuous act because to remain in God requires discipline on the life of the believer. It is not natural for us, particularly today, to want to sit and reside and to dwell and to remain and to wait. We live in a world of action in our own sinful nature. When we get to that place of residing, we become a little unpleasant. It becomes a little painful. But that is part of remaining in love. That is part of remaining with God. To kick off the series, I want to encourage you to make your way to the book of Psalms. Psalms is in the Old Testament. Psalm chapter 37, little hint for you. If you have your Bible with you and you're not on an electronic device, you put your thumbs in the middle of the Bible and open it up, you'll be pretty close to Psalm, if not exactly in it. But we're going to be in Psalm chapter 37. Psalm 37 holds the most references concerning remaining or dwelling. And as you make your way there, just a little bit of background. Psalm 37 is, says that it's of David, meaning David wrote it. As we read through the psalm, we'll find out that David is in his old age. Verse 25 says that he, is, he once was young, but now that he is old. And that tells us several things right then and there. David is king. He's in Jerusalem, the holy city of God, also known as Zion sometimes in Scripture. The city has been set apart. That is where the people of God come to worship the Lord. But because David has a lot of blood on his hands, he has yet to build the temple of the Lord. So the people are still worshiping in the tabernacle, that, that huge tent that they carried through the wilderness is setting outside the palace of the king. And David being old, he, is, he has gone to battle. He has gone to wars. He has had a lot of blood on his hands so that the people of God could reside in what would be called the promised land. And now they're there and he's getting old. So he's, he's seeing the end in sight. This life is almost over. And so he's probably speaking to his son Solomon, but he's also speaking to the people of Israel because when David dies, here's what happens. Everything he has worked for, everything he has spent his life to accomplish is going to be on this, this, these people and whether or not they're going to remain in love with God, whether or not they're going to do what God has commanded them to do. So his whole life is, is going to have this huge turning point. Was it really worth it to spend all my life running and chasing and going to war and fighting and, and killing or is it all going to be washed away? And so because this is coming, because the end is near, David is giving an instruction. This psalm is unlike any other psalm in Scripture, in the book of Psalms, in that it is a proverbial psalm. It is a psalm of wisdom, a psalm of instruction, where a lot of psalms have laments and types of praising. This one is directed, look, this is what you are to do. This is how you are to live. This is how you are to remain in the land that God has given you. And if you're familiar with Scripture, you're, you're probably familiar that the people of God did not follow this psalm. But David is seeking to give wisdom. And as we open to the very first verse of Psalm, we see that David has been given discernment. <clears throat> he looks out onto his kingdom and he sees that there are people who are desiring to live for God. They're desiring to live righteously and desiring to do good. But then there's also this other group of people. There's a group of people that are living in sin and they're living in wickedness. And it appears that the people doing the sinful acts and the wickedness are beginning to flourish and begin to grow in abundance so that they're encamping the righteous. And as the righteous are living in the midst of this, David sees this. And the Spirit of God gives him discernment that, you know what, I've got to instruct the people that even though this is going on, even though it seems like wickedness and evil and sin is so prevalent in your life, understand this is what you need to do. This is how you need to live. Ultimately, the psalm is dealing with 
when you look out into the world and you see people doing what we know is wrong, what we know goes against the standards of God, what we know is sinful, what the Bible calls wickedness and unrighteousness, and we look out in the world and we see that, we're able to discern that, then the question emerged, why do they seem to get away with it? Why does it seem that everything goes their way? Why does it seem they're not struggling? Why does it seem that, that they just continue to grow and to grow? Why is God allowing to do this? And we all struggle with this. And the problem in struggling with this, it can cause us to not remain in God, not remain in love, but instead to react in such a way that is ungodly. We've all experienced it, whether it's been at work with our coworkers. We see someone lying, someone cheating, maybe someone stealing, someone getting away with something that they shouldn't be getting away with. Even worse, they seem to get successful. They get praised for it. And what do we want initially? We want someone to put them in their place. God, if you would just step in and reveal how evil this practice is, how, how bad the thing they're doing is, if you would just shine light on that, we want someone or something to take action. And when that time comes, we, we can in turn, when we don't see something happening and they seem to get away with it, we can in turn act out of sin. We can in turn begin acting unrighteously and we don't remain in love. We don't remain in God. The reality is in this world, evil exists. And evil people will gain power. They will lie, they will cheat, they will buy, and they will trick their way to the top. But we as God's people, in the midst of struggling and seeing this happen, Psalm 37 gives us instruction on what we should be, how we should be seeing it, seeing it, and what we should be doing in the midst of the struggle. In the midst of the struggle, how do we remain in love? How do we remain where God wants us to be? Look here in verse 1 and 2 of chapter 37. It opens right out of the gate. Do not be agitated by evildoers. Do not envy those who do wrong. For they wither quickly like grass, and they wilt like tender green plants. Verse 1, it says, do not be agitated. That word Agitated implies to burn with anger. It's to become furious. It's to get so mad that you, right hand of fellowship is coming your way. It is, it is to be at the brink that you're getting ready to act out. It sees injustice in the world and wants justice to be done. And here's a quick lesson we can learn from these two verses. We cannot control how other people choose to live their life, but we can control how we will respond to it. Put it in shorter terms, we can't control others' actions, but we can control our reaction. Your control is going to take discipline on your life. There are going to be people that are going to just tick you off royally. And the danger in that that this psalm is going to deal with is instead of lashing out, instead of acting out, instead of trying to set things right your own way, is to remain in love, is to remain in God, and is allow God to do what only God can do. Verse 2 talks about we need to keep in mind the ultimate end to all people who continuously practice sin, continuing to live out wickedness, continuing to do evil, that there is a day coming where their destruction will come upon them. Verses 10 through 22 of this particular psalm focuses on that day when the wicked people will stand before God in judgment and destruction will fall upon them. 
The Bible here is telling us that when we see evil and we see people living out evil, here's the danger. Is we can be tempted to look at somebody and see the sin that they're doing and see them getting away with it. And now we're at, well, if they can do it, why can't I? If they can get away with it, why can't I? And you can witness this on the news almost daily. You get one group coming out doing a peaceful protest, turns into riots. So their opposing group comes out and does a peaceful protest and it turns into riots. And you know what they do? Instead of saying, you know, that's wrong, they point at each other and say, well, they started it. And this is the danger of our sinful nature inside of us. We look at other people getting away with sin. Other people seem to be flourishing. Other people seem to be growing up in the ranks and being coming success by the world's standards. And we can come to the temptation that, you know what, why shouldn't I do that? If they're getting away with it, why shouldn't I do that? Because the reality is when we live out sin, when we live out wickedness, when we live out evil, we cannot remain in God. And therefore, we cannot be where God wants us to be. The scriptures here in 37 is not denying that evil exists. It's not even denial that evil has an effect on our life. It's giving us the reality, this is now how you should respond. You should not respond evil with evil or sin with sin. Jesus said it like this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 38 and 39. It says, you have heard it that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, don't resist an evildoer. On the contrary, if anyone slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. He said this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 44. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Paul got in on this conversation in Romans chapter 3 and chapter 6. Because naturally in our life, because we have sin in our life, we naturally want to react. The problem is, most of the times the way we react is sinful. We get mad. We want to put people in their place. We want to belittle them. We, we want to talk behind their backs about them, which is not a godly and is not remaining where God wants us to be. The Bible here in, verse, in chapter 37 of Psalms says there is a godly way to react and an ungodly way to react. And as God's people, we are called to react godly. So what do we do? Well, first, we need to keep in mind everyone's going to stand before God in judgment. And that includes us. That includes us as God's people. We will stand before God one day and have to give an account for everything we say and do in this world, in this life. The second thing we have to keep in mind is we have to be able to control our reactions. We have to be able to control our reactions. Look in verse 3 because it gives us the instructions. When you're in the midst of being frustrated by evil, when you're struggling in this, in this life and you're, you're struggling to remain in God, verse 3 begins by saying, Trust in the Lord and do what is good. Dwell in the land and live securely. It means that we should find our confidence in God. We shouldn't find our confidence in what we think we should do or how we think we should do it or how we think things should come about. But we trust that God will do things and he will set things right. It's to trust in his word. It's to trust in his promises. Verse 22 says that those who are blessed by the Lord will inherit the land, but those who are cursed by him will be destroyed. It's to trust that the Lord is going to fight our battles. And because we trust God and because we trust God's word and because we trust God's course of action, verse 3 tells that we can do what is good. Because we trust God is good, we trust God's ways is good, and we trust God knows all things. He is aware of what is going on in our life. He is aware of the things that are trying to pull us from his presence. We can trust him to take care of the situation so we, in fact, can do good instead of evil. It begins by trusting in God. 
The promise there in verse 3 says when we do that, when we trust in God and we, in fact, do what is good instead of evil, we will dwell, and that's our word for remain or abide, we will dwell in the land and live securely. Again, that land in chapter 37 of Psalms is speaking of the promised land. It's the place where God desired his people to be, where they would be prosperous and successful. It's the place that he set aside for them to to have their inheritance. So the promise here for them is that if you do what is good and you trust God to fight your battles, you will be in the place where God wants you to be. We don't have to go too far to see how that is relevant to us today. If we trust God to do what only God can do in situations, then we will be where God wants us to be. But if we don't trust God and we act out of our own sinful reactions, our own sinful thoughts and what should be taking place, we move out of the presence of God. We move out of the will of God. We move off the right path and we're no longer remaining in love. The underlying theme and point of Psalms is that we need to change our focus. There are struggles, there's evils, there's sin, there's wickedness in his life, but we have to change our focus. It's so easy to focus on the wrongs in front of us. It's so easy to say, you know, this is what should happen and this, this is what should be done with this person. But instead of focusing on the wrongs, as the Psalm in 37 says, we need to focus on God. Jesus tells us in Matthew 6, after talking about worrying, that instead of worrying, instead of being anxious and agitated and troubled about those things, we need to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. The question is, I was walking through, so does this mean that we shouldn't try to correct wrongs? Do we just step back and let God? And that's not what the psalm is saying. But we do have to keep in mind that to biblically correct someone, if you're going to correct someone according to the word of God, one thing that has to be in place is that individual has to be a child of God. We cannot hold godly standards to ungodly people. You can't. And so if you're going to correct someone according to the word of God, then they have to first be someone who's in love with God and understand how God loves them. Otherwise, there's no no balancing place. There's no place to even start from. You can't correct them until they come to a knowledge of who God is and how much God loves them. So it's not saying that we shouldn't correct and we we shouldn't teach and we shouldn't uh, try to make things right. It's just giving us this warning that when we become so aggravated with the sins of the world, what we can do is act sinful instead of godly. And so it begins at first, I trust in God. And even though I may get frustrated, my response isn't to get frustrated, but look at verse 4. Even though I'm agitated, even though sin is prevalent, I'm trusting in God, I'm doing what is good, I'm dwelling in the land He has placed me, I'm living securely because He is with me, and get this, even though this is all going on, I am taking delight in the Lord. Take delight in the Lord, and He will give you your heart's desires. Now, this verse can be easily taken out of context. This doesn't mean if I am so excited about who God is and and I'm praising God and hooting and hollering because I'm just so joyful about God. This is not saying that God will give you the lottery. This is not saying God will cancel all your debts and all your bills. This is not saying God is going to give you a raise. It's not saying God's going to give you uh, everything to make you rich. That is not the promise he will give you your heart's desire. Within the context of the passage, it's saying that if I find extreme joy in God, extreme confidence in God, extreme trust in God, that he is going to take care of me because I'm his child, and he's going to take care of this situation that is bothering me, that is interrupting my relationship with him, allowing me to remain in him. If I just trust in that and I delight in that, 
that my attention is not on the sin, it's not on the evil, but my attention is on the God who loves me. And so my desire is not worldly success or worldly wealth, but my desire is on Him. That's my heart's desire. Because I'm trusting in Him and I'm delighting in Him. And when I do that, look there in verse 5. It says, then you commit your way to the Lord. The word there for commit in verse 5, it, it means to roll up. And I thought, that's weird. But when I began thinking about it, it means to roll yourself in the, up in the Lord. It's a picture of like a blanket. That you roll yourself up in the Lord so that all that is seen on you is the Lord. That is to commit your way to God. Is I am so engulfed. I am so wrapped up in God that all that is coming out of me is God. All that people can see in me is God. It took me an image when our kids were really little and on a Saturday morning, about 5.30 in the morning, they come rushing into the door. And what do you do as a parent when your kid comes in at 5.30 in the morning on Saturday? You grab that blanket and you do what? You wrap yourself in it. You roll yourself in it. It's like you're, you're protecting yourself in it, hoping your child is like, oh, okay, you know, I don't, they're not here. They don't, they guess. And so we as parents, you know, we play peekaboo like, you know, we're gone. And so we wrap ourselves in the blanket. It gives us secure and warmth. Or for some of you all who aren't morning people, here in a couple of months, it's going to get cold in the morning. And when that alarm goes off in the morning and it's cold, what do you do? Do you hop out of bed? You roll yourself in the blanket a little bit tighter. You cocoon yourself. This is the picture here that is saying, commit your way to the Lord. It says to wrap yourself up in the Lord's ways. Engulf yourself in that so it is all that is seen and all that is coming out of your life. It's all people see when they look at you. You're so engulfed before him. Why? Because you trust him, verse 5. Because you know he will act. He will do what is righteous. Now that promise that he will act does not mean it's going to be on your or my timetable. It doesn't even promise it's going to be the way we think it should be done. But he will act in a righteous manner, which will keep us from acting in an unrighteous manner. So that we can remain in him. Then it says in verse 7, be silent before the Lord. Meaning to remain, God, I just rest in him. I'm all rolled up in him. I know he has good for me. I know I can trust him. And so I can just be still. I can be without words. I don't have to come before God and try to explain myself. I don't have to come before God and try to rationalize why I'm struggling with this or why I'm dealing with this. I can just wait for him. And it says to wait expectantly. There's a similar phrase in verse 34 of this particular psalm. It says, wait for the Lord and keep his ways, and he will exalt you and inherit the land. And even though we may hear it in the same word, I'm waiting expectantly and wait for the Lord in the English, it actually is two different words in the Hebrew, and they imply two different things. In verse 7, it says, wait expectantly for him. And again, in the context, in beginning in verse 1 and 2, the scenario is that the people of God, the righteous, are seeing this unrighteousness and this wickedness all around them. They're getting mad. They're getting furious. They want God to show up. They want God to come down, God to do something. But instead, they are to wait expectantly. And that phrase means they are to wait in anguish. They are to wait in pain. 
Because they look out and they are wanting to do something about it. They are to wait because sometimes when you're waiting for God to show up and waiting for God to do something in your life, it can be painful. The silence of God can be painful. But the promise is if we just wait, knowing that God has our good in mind, that God is with us, He will never leave us or forsake us. He has placed us where He wants us to be. And so we just wait there for God to do what only we can do. Then there will be a reprieve. Verse 7 says, while we're waiting almost in pain and anguish, God, why don't you do something? Why don't you act out? How can you let these people get away with that? It says, don't be agitated by the one who prospers in his way, by the person who carries out evil. Why? Because in verse 34, when we are to wait for the Lord, that waiting is a waiting that we, we are eagerly waiting. And what are we eagerly waiting for? See, verse 7 is, I'm waiting in pain and anguish. I'm waiting in, in, in almost torture of my mind and my soul and my spirit because I'm able to see the things of this world going on. But verse 34, now what am I waiting for? I'm waiting for the eternal glory. I'm waiting for God to show up because I know He will. And so there's one that it's in the midst of the pain, but then there's one in retraining our focus on what we're waiting for, that God is going to show up, and at one point in time, He's going to set everything back into perfection. Everything is going to be the way our brain says it should be. But it may not happen today. It may not happen tomorrow. That person, those people that are frustrating the tar out of you, may never get put in their place on this side of eternity. But one day they're going to stand before a God and they're going to have to give an account. And so we wait in awe and reverence knowing that we're God's people. And then when we give an account, that account has been paid in full through Jesus Christ. But the people who continue to live in sin and live out sin will stand before God with no one to appeal on their behalf and they will be sentenced to eternal punishment in hell. So we remain in love. We remain where God wants us to be. Verse 8 and 9 of chapter 37 says, Refrain from anger. Give up your rage. Let it go. <laughs> Frozen. Yay. Let it go. Don't be agitated. It can only bring harm. Not just harm to you, but harm to the people that are closest to you in your life. When these things start to affect your life, they affect your relationship with God, who gets the blunt of it? The people you love the most. It says, for evildoers, here's the promise, they will be destroyed. But those who put their hope in the Lord will inherit the land. So how do we rise above it? I mean, the psalm is not denying evil exists. It's not denying that evil is going to happen. It's not going to deny that you and I are going to be impacted and affected by evil. We're not going to struggle in this relationship with God. We're not going to struggle in remaining in love and abiding where God is. So how do we rise above it? How do we act worldly? How do we act uh, godly instead of worldly? Well, here's the promise of Psalm 37 and where we're going to unpack the next several weeks. To remain in God requires that we trust God no matter what is going on in our life. To remain in God is to find joy in living our life for Him, even when it doesn't make sense. 
To remain in God is to commit ourselves to His plan. It's to be engulfed in it. To remain in God is to be silent and wait anxiously and expectantly. To remain in God is to realize that this world is not our home, so we don't have to act like the world, but instead we act like the God and the kingdom we belong to. Since God will bring judgment one day, we tremble in awe and reverence of that day, and we live our life the very best we can according to His will. To remain in God is to love God and to love people, that no matter what surrounds us in life, we know we belong to God, and He will take care of us as His child. Short to remain in love and to remain in God, I have to keep my attention and my focus on the God who is love. And this world will try to distract us every moment it gets. Satan will try to pull us away from that love. And so we have to keep turning our focus. <coughs> Hear the promise in verse 39 of chapter 37 there in Psalm. It says, The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. And their refuge in a time of distress. God never promises in his word, his word that this life is going to be easy for his people. He never promises that. That is a false doctrine that is preached a lot here in America. Matter of fact, God never promises that you're going to have a large bank account, a big retirement fund, or a lot of cool, fancy stuff. But what God does promise to you is that he loves you. He is for you, not against you, and he has an incredible plan for your life. But to be a part of that plan, you have to remain in love. You have to remain where God has set you to be. And this was the fear of David, that he spent his whole life getting this place set up for God's people. And now that his life is almost over, because we all did our own choice, our own free will, that the people of God were going to move away from that. And the promise is when we move away from God, it only leads to destruction. Jesus said it very clearly in the Gospels. Satan has come to kill, steal, and destroy you. So we are not remaining in love. That is exactly what we can expect. And it hurts. It's painful. And every time that has happened in my life, and looking back, I see exactly what has happened. I moved from where God wanted me to be, and I was not abiding in him. I did not remain in him. That's not what God wants for your life. You may be here this morning, and remaining in God is not necessarily what you need to hear. Because the promise is you cannot remain in God, and you cannot remain in love unless you first accept God's love for you. You're already not where you're supposed to be before God. You're still in your sin. But the Bible says that God loves you. It says God loves you so much he sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to die for you. He took your sin, your punishment upon himself on a cross. The Bible says that if you believe that God loves you that much, that you will be given eternal life. It's by placing your faith, not by anything you can do, anything you, you can bring before God or anything that is keeping you from God. It's just understanding God loves me. He's for me that much. Why would God do such an extravagant act? The Bible says in Romans 3.23 that all of us have sinned before God. All of us at one point in time have not remained in love. We've done our own thing. We've acted out of our own actions, and, and it's led to sin. It's led to regret. That separates us from God, and if that's not dealt with, we'll be eternally separated from God. We will be destroyed like the wicked ones here in Psalm 37. But God says that the way to sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the love of God. 
So you can't remain in love until you first accept the love God has for you. The Bible says very clearly how we do that in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. It says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. First, I got to believe it. God loves me. I may not have it all figured out, but I know he loves me. And I believe he did that for me on the cross. And the second act is I have to confess it. The word confess means I have to make it publicly known. Then I'll be saved. And then I can start remaining in love like the Bible calls me and like God is calling me to you at this moment. If you're here this morning and that's where you are, hear this, that God is calling out to you to step out of the darkness and into his light and begin in this love relationship with you. If you're here this morning and you're a child of God and you're just going through struggles right now, the promise and instruction in Psalm 37 is where we need to start clinging to. Just wrap myself up in God. Roll myself up in Him. and Just trust Him. I don't know where you are, but I know God is moving. I know God has put this message on my heart for a while now just to begin this morning. And I believe all of us have somewhere to respond to it. But the first place, I'm going to be down here. If you've yet to accept Jesus Christ, I invite you to come down and ask Jackson to come and lead us. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this day. Lord, thank you that we can trust you, that your ways are far beyond our own. Lord, forgive us those times where we act out. We act out in anger, which your son tells us that's the same as murder. Father, forgive us those times where we, we don't remain where we need to be. We don't remain in your ways and in your will, but we step out of that. Forgive us for the people we've hurt, the harm we've brought to ourselves and to other people. But Father, we're coming to you right now. Lord, we want to be in you. We want to be found in you. We want all people see in us is you. So help us to commit. Help us to trust you. Help us to delight in you. Help us to wait for you, even when it hurts. Thank you, Lord, that you are faithful. You are faithful. Father, we come before you in this time, this time of invitation, a time of declaration, a time of response. Lord, I pray for those who are here this morning who have yet to accept you as their Lord and Savior. Lord, in this time, this place, you, you've revealed that they've yet to accept that, that gift of love. Lord, I pray right now in the name of Jesus Christ, you just break every wall that is holding them to where they are and they need to come down. And they let it be known that they believe and they want to be saved. Father, for your children here today that are struggling, Father, you know we all have our own struggles. We all have our own wrestling matches going on. Those things we're worried about, sometimes get consumed about. Lord, help us to, to take this psalm to heart. And I thank you, Lord, for the good work you're doing. Thank you, word does not come back void. In this time, this place, if we have sinned in any way, we ask for your forgiveness. Be with us as we come this time in response. We pray this on your son's name. Let's stand as we sing.